Hey everybody, it's Rob, National Fire Radio, back with another episode of The Gospel, and I have somebody who I've been trying to meet up with and get on this uh, podcast for some time. I got to meet him out at FDIC. Chris, I don't know if that was exactly the first time that we met, um, but I got to see you teach out at Revolutionary Fire Tactics at the Lake this year, and I am super excited to have Chris Kessinger from Citizens First Fire Training on an episode with The Gospel. Chris, how you doing? Welcome. Thank you for coming. I'm excited. I'm excited too. I appreciate you having me on and been looking forward to having a talk with you for a while. So uh, Chris, kind of just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, just for the people who don't know you, you know, we'll start with like you were born on, no, I'm just, like, but give us a little background on you. Well, I'm just somebody who loves the job. I've been a fireman going on 20 years this year. Uh, I've done volunteer side, career side combination, everywhere from a lineman to a company officer. I've held spots in the union and a couple locals as well during my career and just love being able to meet firemen, to train, to get involved in the job and everything that it has to do with making it better and trying to give back. And then um, talk to me a little bit about Citizens First uh, Fire Training. So we established in 2019. Uh, we are a veteran-owned and fireman-owned company. We have no sponsors, no official money coming in, nothing like that that dictates anything we do. Everything we do is mission-based from the instructors that work for me and that we teach together. And we decide what we're going to do, where we're going to go, in everything that we're supporting and that allows us to be able to put it into a role of giving the most back to the fire service as much as possible uh, everybody is either career volunteer that works for us and we we're not a big sales company of just out there to make money we are focused on giving the best training and the best equipment possible while using the proceeds from those sales to give back to the fire service. And a lot of that goes to supporting fools chapters or injured and killed firemen across the country where this year we've donated about $150,000 back. Wow. So $150,000 donated back to either fools chapters or uh, firefighters who have either died in the line of duty or have fallen on hard times. I mean, that's a pretty impressive number. That's like, I, I, I didn't even know that. Like, so that's, that's, that's pretty, pretty remarkable. I'm, I'm like, there's not many times where I'm speechless, but uh, you, you got me on that one. Um, and, and the start, like, where did the idea for this spark for you to, to start, start, like, what was the, what was the, the ignition point for you to say like, Hey, I'm, I'm, we're going to get together and do this. Originally it just started out as a group of firemen wanting to teach and wanting to train. And initially we started the LLC for the legal liability with everywhere that we were teaching and everything that we were doing. And it's grown exponentially from there. Um, it was just an outlet for guys that were getting frustrated on the job, dealing with politics, dealing with everything else to be able to go out and teach, give back, show the passion that they have, what they love about the job and to reignite that passion and recharge other people in similar situations. 
Because no matter the department you're on, whether it's career, volunteer, big, small, there's eventually going to be politics and bullshit you have to deal with, and that wears down on you. If you're not going to a lot of fires and you're having to deal with a lot of BS, you're going to get frustrated. And the most frustrated people are typically your most passionate, most dedicated people. And that turns into issues when they don't have a release that is constructive to be able to get that out and to be able to make themselves better or to be able to just get the work in. Right, right. And how many, like, just, do, you, do you know how many students you've, you've taught so far? Uh, this year we're at just over 2000 students. Okay. And like, uh, since starting in, in 2019, I mean, obviously the pandemic probably slowed you down a little bit, but actually, no, we didn't miss a single class during that. Awesome. So we're still keeping up our national, uh, prioritize the search conference and everything going on during the pandemic. So we kept everything safe, everything small with numbers, with students and everything, but we kept our classes going. That is awesome. Hold on a second. Um, so let's talk about some of the classes that you guys, um, so some of the, some of the classes that you guys have, cause I saw like some of the, you know, basic and advanced force blend prioritizing the search VES, but the one that kind of caught my eye was a citizen's first tactics. What, what is that just a, like, did, did you just win on a catchy name on that one and caught my attention? But like, what, what is, cause I like it very much, you know, your mission about the training company is putting the citizen first and, and why that's so important, but what is citizens first tactics? So regardless of the size of your department, every one of our classes is custom tailored to that individual department or region. So we go over your response guidelines, your writing oh, assignments, okay. what apparatus that you have in there, and we build the class around that. So we don't have a cookie cutter class. So what that does is allows us from the outside to evaluate how you're responding, what you're doing, what tactics you're performing, areas that you're good in, areas that you need improvement in, and we're able to focus on on that to help. Well, the big thing is the reduce the civilian fire fatalities. So to give a mission first mentality, to be able to get back time, whether it's stressing out fast, masking up with your gloves on, being able to do a single man force, stretching a line in 15 to 30 seconds, those little things that add up to give minutes back to make that survival chance for that civilian better. What do you think in the fire service as a whole we miss when it comes to training? Like, cause you know, I mean, we were talking a little bit about it before off camera, before we started, but um, to kind of, you know, to get the, I don't want to say the groundwork for what we were going to talk about today, but like, I, I feel like, you know, especially since starting National Fire Radio, there's something missing in in the fire service as a whole when it comes to our approach from training. And it's it's not, you know, it, it's kind of goes about what you just said. Like, what do you think the, the rub is that's causing the friction where we're kind of missing the boat here? Honestly, I think we as a fire service lost our focus on what the training is truly about. It's not about getting certificates or adding letters to the end of your name or anything like that. It's about having a mission first mentality, getting the training, getting the guys out of the chairs, off the computer, being able to put the time in to build the experience that they have. 
They need to be forcing doors, throwing ladders, stretching lines, running the saws, being able to use all the equipment that we have and be proficient at it. So at three in the morning, they can do it without question and it's muscle memory at that point. So with going to less fires than we were statistically 30, 40 years ago, we have to fill that experience void. And the first budget that gets cut with the department is always the training budget. We want to send people to classes that give them a certificate for installing car seats or doing some type of command role that they aren't going to use on a regular basis, but we don't send them to a fool's chapter or a national conference for 20 to 30 bucks where they're going to flow thousands of gallons of water, stretch lines for eight hours a day, throw the ground ladders to rescue the civilians. So we're not prioritizing the focus on the actual job that it's blue collar. We have to put the sweat equity in to be able to get the return on our investment. And honestly, training is the biggest investment we have in our people. If we train them, we invest back into them, we get to retain them. We get better experienced people and it's just an all around win. Oh, sorry about that. We got the, somebody running in the front door there. Um, I, I wrote that down. Training is the biggest investment we have in our people because I think that's what you hit the nail on the head that with that. And, you know, it is really like the answer of, of sorts to retention because everybody's always wondering what's mm -hmm. like, you know, and, and, and people want to say like, hey, why do, they, why do they leave? Why do they not come back? You know, and at the same time, they don't actually want to ask that hard question and get the answers. Yeah. Um, if you look at the departments that have the best retention going on in the country, they also have probably some of the best training cadres, training programs that are out there as well, because they know what their investment is. Hold on one second, Chris. Just wanted to shut the door to the office there. The guys are downstairs cooperating as always. So, <laughs> um, you know, and, and you, you're an active member of the Central Ohio Fools Chapter. Can you just kind of touch on that real quick? Because the so like Fools Chapters for me prior to being involved with NFR, um, I think I was leaving a bar where they were going into in kilts with their helmets one day, and I was like, "What is going?" It was probably a, a very poor representation because it was not what the fool's chapter is about but kind of just can you touch on that for a, a quick second because it's uh i think the, the two of these are kind of going hand in hand and you said something about sending guys to a fool's event where they're going to do xyz versus that certificate and i think it's important for the the listener to understand you know the fool's chapters and and how they how they really help us help them Absolutely. They're probably one of the best organizations giving back to the true brotherhood of the fire service I've ever seen. Um, they've saved my career. I was a lazy piece of shit that didn't want to get out and train, thought I knew everything, wanted to be in my recliner and was completely complacent. And it took me getting out to a fool's chapter, going through the classes that reignited my passion that fixed me, got me motivated into the job again, and my entire crew and everybody that went with us. And the best thing is these trainings that they put on are not expensive. They're cheap classes. You are put with instructors that don't have huge egos. 
that just love the job, that want to put the work in with you and that are going to do the training right alongside you. It's a cheap investment. Uh, you're able to become a member. They have a great website that'll put you in with the closest chapter next to you. But when members are killed, they have illnesses in their family. These organizations are out raising money to help their brothers in need. And they truly give back more than any recognition could ever give to them. And I just want to try to give as much attention to the chapters as much as possible because of what they can do to help get the fire service back to where it needs to be. They are yeah. focused on tradition. They are focused on brotherhood and they are focused on training to save one another and to get the civilians saved. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's so much that I've watched the fool's chapter do. And I, I think uh, one of my friends said once um, he was talking about, uh, you know, uh, the, the axeman at Mike Conroy had interviewed him way a long time ago. And he said that it was the brotherhood. He found the brotherhood in the axeman when it was lacking in his own job while we previously worked in another department and the fool's chapters really seem to like, like how he described what he found out of the axeman is to me, the mantra of what the fools are all about. It's that, that brotherhood mm -hmm. and, you know, sometimes I hate that it becomes a joke in the fire service. We're like, oh, hey, brother. And like, you know, you chuckle. But like, it really is about it. That's like, if, if we don't have that, then like, I don't want to say there's no sense in doing what we're doing. But like, I know for me, that was a huge motivator of watching that local volunteer fire department that my parents belong to and seeing how they all came together on holidays or at the firehouse for functions. And it just, you know, I, I got to say it was a you know, a, a big change for me just to kind of experience that and see it from that aspect. And I think the fool's chapter is like every, everyone I've interacted with is, has kind of followed in that, in that light. So it's absolutely super, important. super important. Um, another thing I wanted to circle back to, you said, you, you've said mission a lot, you know, and, we're, and you talked about citizens first being better and doing, were you, uh, did you serve as well or? Yes, I was a medic in the 82nd Airborne uh, with three deployments to Afghanistan. I think the, the reason why I'm kind of hitting on this is because we lose track a lot of times of the mission. And it's just like you you talk about, you know, the mission is the citizens. It's the, you know, the person calling 911. And I mean, just kind of expand on that just, just real quick, because I think it's just another it's something we don't talk about. Like we don't like we, or I shouldn't say we don't talk about it, but I think the fire service loses sight of the mission with all the certificates, the online programs, the, you know, the things that we're checking boxes on, like that's not about the mission. No, absolutely. So our mission as the fire service is simple. Anything that the civilians call and they need help with that is not taking somebody to jail falls on the fire department. We get called there to be the world's problem solvers, no matter what the issue is. And that is why our mission, our job, our trainings, our taskings keep expanding is because we are the catch-all to fix every problem that's there. And I feel that we lose a lot of sight on that. We lose our guidance, our North Star on what our mission is, why we're working out, why we have the gym equipment, why we have the gear, why we go to all this training, why we have the expensive apparatus is all to be ready to respond when that call comes in, no matter what the time of day is. 
It could be a leaky pipe in an elderly woman's kitchen. She has nobody else to take care of it. We are the problem solver. It could be somebody in cardiac arrest handing you their lifeless two-week-old baby that you've never met, and they trust you without question because of the job and the profession and what the people that came before us have laid the foundation for, and we are losing that. When they lose the trust in us, we start getting scrutinized more. We need to be scrutinizing ourselves a lot more and holding ourselves accountable to where we don't lose that trust. We see similar distension going on in the police world right now with everything being caught on video, everything they're doing being caught in question, and it's costing cops their lives. And it's going to happen in the fire service. Lawyers are holding us more accountable for not doing VES or window initiated search, for not forcing a door, for waiting for a two in, two out rule before we went in to initiate a rescue or initiate a search. Lawyers are reading the textbooks and holding fire departments accountable across the country. And pretty soon the civilians are going to wise up to some of our safety policies, our me first mentality and everything else. And we are going to lose the trust that everybody that came before us in this job earned. And that's going to be a very, very bad day. And it's going to cost a lot of people their lives. And that's something that we need to be preventing. We need to hold each other accountable and we need to be raising ourselves up and holding ourselves to a higher standard. Mediocrity doesn't save lives. We need to be able to put the work in to make, their, make sure that this is the blue collar profession and we need to act as professionals, regardless of pay status or job status, that shit doesn't matter. It's being the professional and putting the work in so you're ready when the time comes. You know, I, I think of that, uh, you know, when you talk about the blue collar job that firefighting is and, you know, there was this, I, I think it's still out there, but the shift of, you know, and I had a, I had a boss who, who was very heavy into education and like, we have to maintain that blue collar nature of our business because it is the tr that there's just no, like, I can't write a paper and put a fire out, right? I can't, I can't do a thesis on a cardiac arrest and like not not have my hands on the patient doing chest compressions or putting the Lucas device on mm -hmm. and or even you know as my as my guys are doing that interacting with the family trying to keep them calm selling them that we are doing everything that we can and explaining that process like that you you can learn parts of that from a classroom mm -hmm. and maybe a fancy degree but until you're actually out in the field having that interaction human to human it's it's like that's and that's why i think that you know thankfully that's why we'll always i think maintain being a blue collar job but it's so easy to get lost in all of that uh it just yeah that's that, that, that thank you that was fantastic i mean i have a college degree too but it's never helped me on a fire ground what um on on the on the training front, um, what is your what is your go to? Like, what do you love to see that just like makes you happy when you're like either like I call you up and I'm like Chris, I need you to come do some training with my department, or you're out and about and you stumble across something. Like, what is it that's that you have found is like a you know just like I said your I don't want to say your favorite because that sounds kind of weird, but like what's what is what is it that motivates you? You know that gets you tuned up. Honestly, this is going to be simple. It's 
the members that are there asking questions and getting involved, no matter what the discipline is, if you're getting them to get involved and ask questions, start discussions, you're getting them thinking, you're talking through scenarios, you're able to get them involved. And when you get them involved, you get their buy-in. It can be auto extrication, it can be forcible entry, it can be search, we can do saw work or any of those disciplines. But if we're just sitting there going through the paces and it's a check the box, we're getting no involvement, we're getting no retention. But if we're getting them to start thinking, start asking questions and getting involved, we're more likely to get retention. We're more likely to get this as something that they are going to build on and continue to work on. Because you can sit there and do an eight-hour class on something and they'll forget it 15 minutes after you leave. Right. But if we're able to engage and get them buy-in and get them involved in the process of learning it, we leave that for their entire lifetime. Well, and and watching your cadre teach the, over the summer, like that's one hundred percent how you approach the, like you know, I, I mean, I can say like I, I watched you guys approach that because it was a before I did this, I was downstairs and said, hey, I got to do a quick interview, and uh, the one guy that was out there in Missouri with me, Jason, was like, who are you? Who are your interviewing? I was like, oh, Chris Kessinger and Citizens First Fire Training, and he got like he he lit up just because of that interaction that he had with your your cadre and watching them get that engagement. And I think that I sometimes I'm almost afraid that people are, uh, you know, when it comes back to the firehouses that they're worried about getting engagement. Like it's something that they almost fear, like because it is a stumbling block that everybody runs into some, from time to time. You know, absolutely. They don't want, yeah, they don't want the questions, and I don't know what I don't know if it's a. You might not have an answer, which personally I've always looked forward to not having an answer to a question because, uh, one, I'm going to have to go find that answer out, so I'm going to become a little bit better. But like, it also shows that I'm human, right? Like, people don't want to know it all in in the room, uh, yeah. unless I'm in surgery. I want a know it all doctor. Like, please have the skills and be like, yes, that's his heart. We shouldn't take that out. Um, <laughs> And see, I want the doctor that's made mistakes yes. because he wants to get better and he's learning and he's continuing to put himself out there to get better and to learn. So the doctor that thinks they know everything right. is going to kill more people than good. Mm -hmm. But I can honestly say I will be the biggest fuck up in any room I walk in because I will make more mistakes than anybody in that room. But I'm also going to put in more reps. The first forceful entry door I bought was just for me to use in my garage. My wife still hounds me about this. It was for me to be able to get reps in at home. And then we started doing classes with it. It was for nothing else. I just wanted to be better and I wasn't getting enough where I was working. So we built a door and then I bought a door. And it was just to get reps in. Mm -hmm. How... Reps are so important, and I think people miss out because I, you know, sometimes uh, like I've I've looked at this duality of training that happens um, across the country, and especially when people talk to me about it, like there's there's reps that have a purpose, and then there's reps that like we're just doing something to check a box. Mm -hmm. I, I the other side of what I do is I'm a firearms instructor, so you know, like when it comes to drawing out of the holster, I, I utilize a five step draw process to teach. And like, there's a, there's a start and a finish to this of, you know, grip coming out and, and just pushing out to, towards that target and everything that we do. How do, 
how do you get the reps to equal something in the fire service? Like, because I think that's where people screw up, or maybe not screw up, but they they have uh, missteps along the way. Um, like, do you know what I'm trying to trying to get at no. here? I, I feel like it, I'm mumbling. Absolutely no, and that's part of what we teach is not only the steps to do it, but the steps to recover, because something's going to change. Just like with firearms. You may slip on a patch of ice as you're going for your draw, and that's going to change how you're drawing. If it's coming from a kneeling position or an offhand, you have to be able to recover from that to be able to get your shot placement out to complete what your mission is. And it's the same thing with forcible entry. We can have bad tool placement. We can have a three-piece halogen or something like that that's going to affect us. Secondary locks, tertiary locks, drop bars, everything else. And it's being able to get into foundational steps to be able to recover and overcome that is how we adapt. It's the same thing with vehicle extrication when we're dealing with rust. We can go over cutting a car ABC steps all day long, but when we initiate rust or we initiate crush or damage from that sheet metal, it changes a lot of how that metal is going to react. So you have to be able to recover from that. And that's where we get into the anatomy of the search, the anatomy of the forcible entry, anatomy of vehicle extrication, because if we understand the true anatomy of the skill that we're trying to learn, we can teach you how to recover, adapt, and overcome to what you're needing to do. You know, um, Chris, who was it that you, I, I don't know if you can remember this, uh, the, the gentleman from Texas, I met him out at the Joey D Texas event, um, and then he was talking to you in the AMCUS booth at FDIC, uh, and I'm just, I'm slipping on his name. Alex. Alex, yes. Mm -hmm. He he had said something to me, and you talk about that that recovery because I also think that's where the reps come in is because that is how you it does help you with the recovery. Um, mm -hmm. But like he on vehicle extrication, he talked about reversing the damage, and that was the first mm -hmm. time in over twenty years of being a firefighter and doing extrication that I heard that terminology before. And he dove into all of these things that like, and I realized, you know, in, in him explaining this, that I had gotten sales, you know, sales pitches, essentially, mm -hmm. like the used car salesman thing, like I got this good, good piece right here for you. Um, and he said, think about why you do that. Like, you're not doing that because of the accident, you're doing it because most likely when you're doing all your training, you had a perfectly good car that's never been involved in an accident. So you had to make these relief cuts or else that the tool wasn't going to work the car that way. Mm -hmm. And like, I just, I remember just having this moment of being like, wow, like you're right. And, you know, and it completely, but like, kind of like, how does that roll into like something like extrication training? Because people, I, you know, I, I think that's another area where, you know, there's a standardized class that you take at a state level or a county level, and it's actually much more deeper into the paint than you would think. Oh, absolutely. And even during our demos uh, with the extrication tools that we sell and everything else, when we're out doing these trainings, we turn it into a true training. We get into the anatomy of the vehicle. We talk about the why. What happens when you do this? The reason that we're doing this, how you're wanting to feed locking mechanisms, how we're looking to be able to reverse the crash or be able to take that crash out of the vehicle to get the patient out. We don't have to be able to do huge lifts when you need a half inch to two inches of clearance to be able to get that victim out. So if they got into the car before the crash, if we reverse the crash out of the car, we can get them out. And it's being able to effectively do that. But not only 
can we teach that? And we do that. We also do it with limited staffing because staffing, no matter what your department is across the country, typically isn't going to get better. So being able to be more functional in a two, three person crew to be able to get the same thing as a five person rescue crew can do with how you place your tools, why you're placing your tools in that position and understanding what you're doing instead of just taking a step A, B, C. Because if you get a side impact and it affects your rocker stability, everything else, that can affect how you're going to be able to do that lift, where you can place a ram, where you can place a spreader, where you need to be making a cut or where you don't need to be making a cut. Like people are very quick to cut roofs. And I'm not a huge person for cutting a roof off because if we leave the structure of the roof intact, we can use that to help reshape the car and take that crash out. Chris, you talked about limited staffing and everybody's dealing with limited staffing. How do you approach that from a training aspect? Because, you know, I know for myself in New York, I work in a smaller, smaller department. There's, you know, currently our staffing is increasing slightly, but there, you know, you can expect five guys, you know, an officer and four firefighters to be leaving the firehouse tonight. But yeah, I'm inundated with a culture of, um, FDNY mentality, and that's not enough for the FDNY. It's just it's who our big brother is down down south of us, um, you know. And a lot of times when they're you know even in our curriculums when they're teaching like forceful entry search, you know, like uh, it's a four man engine company, it's a you know a five man truck. How do you approach limited staffing and training and getting people into the mindset? I mean, I, I know you kind of started to hit on some of the stuff with the extrication, but generalized, how do you approach that? A lot of it, we do it by example. We show them what one person can do. So we'll do heavy forces with one person and we're showing them how we use our tools, where we're placing our tools and using the true maximum mechanical advantage of being able to get that in, how one person can search. And with search and rescue, we use that in fully furnished training rooms that are like a house. So you have couches, you have beds, you have tables, you have piles of clothes, you have shoes, toys, everything else that you encounter and you show how much area one person can cover in that search effectively. Then you teach them what a cluster, a search train is, or them being able to go around the walls they can't do. Mm -hmm. So we talk about the training scars, we talk about the why, and we explain that in everything that we're doing. Because if you're understanding the why of what we do and how we're doing it, and what we have to do to accomplish the mission, it makes it sink in a lot more. Same thing with vehicle extrication. When we go through a demo, I can show them one person rip and blitzing an entire car in under three minutes and what would take them 10 to 15 minutes in their traditional methods with their entire company. And we're doing that as we're talking through all of the steps. So it's purposeful movements as we're going through and being able to do everything. And then we show how you can increase your effectiveness by having a second person here. But if we have a two-person engine company showing up, how can one person do a 360 and force the door while the other one's stretching a line, getting their mask on, ready to make entry, and we're able to go? So we go through the numbers and we take a big look and explain the why and get into what all we're missing. Same thing with victims. The longer that they're in cardiac arrest for every minute, American Heart Association says we have a 10% reduction in survival. We've accepted that for 30 plus years but we haven't put that into relative terms for the fire service and something that's accepted. 
So if we have a th three to five minute response time, is that a 50% reduction in a victim's survivability? That's in cardiac arrest inside of a structure fire. What if it takes me two minutes to stretch a line and to mask up where it could take me 30 seconds if I am taken and shown step by step an effective hose load, an effective deployment model, and how to mask up with gloves on to where I can get that back. And now we just increase the survivability by 7.5% by taking that little bit of time back. And that little bit of time over the entire call, the entire incident, is what adds up to give you the minutes back to make the difference in somebody living or dying. You know, it's, I'm, I'm always conflicted. And I, especially as I have, you know, stepping into the role, I've, I've got to witness a couple of different um, probationary firefighters go to the academy and come back. And I always hear like, we have to teach them the basics, but like, man, it just seems so frustrating because it seems like the basics aren't basic anymore. And I don't mean that like the, like a, you know, from an older generation to be like, these young kids don't understand. Like, like it almost seems like, like we're not teaching that in, in the academy. Like, you know, and I, and I just think back 20 years ago, like it was like two minute drills where like, it was just, it was almost like they were beating us, but like nobody ever actually showed up and was like, Hey, have you thought about putting your mask on this way? Have you thought about doing these steps and really breaking it down? It was just do the skill, do it faster. So imagine if we're getting students out of the academy that we're training them to search properly to mask up with their gloves on and everything from day one. So we're actually building a true solid foundation and not a foundation that is on mud where we're having to go through and fix all the training scars. So these big training books that are out there that are aiming the dialogue for state certifications and everything else, why are we teaching them a search train? Why are we teaching them to hold a boot of the person in front of us? Why are we teaching them to force a door wrong? If we teach them the right way from the very beginning, that's how you're getting a foundation that is solid. I think the one one of the things that I get uh, I, I just know it, it aggravates me is when I'm reviewing stuff and you know you hear the reports back of like hey we're going to teach you this for the test but like this is how you really do it mm -hmm. like why can't we just teach them how to really do it like why absolutely do we have and I know the test is a test you know and I like that there's got to be some kind of marker but there's just some things that I feel like we are completely missing the boat on when it comes to that. So yeah. it's, uh, and in some, some areas, our books are decades behind mm -hmm. vehicle extrications. One of them, uh, where we're teaching relief cuts, not being able to do relief cuts in certain situations and everything else. The same thing with forceful entry, the same thing with search, the same thing with vertical ventilation. We are setting the students up to one, not know the job two to get hurt or killed and three, to be scared of shit they shouldn't be scared of, like building construction, like being able to get onto a roof safely to vertically ventilate. The VES is not a dangerous tactic that needs to be done by advanced firemen, that it is a basic fireman skill that is expected of somebody. I, you know, I remember there was the time where, um, like, 
you know, fast, what we called it in, the, in New York, it was fast, for, you know, rapid intervention, firefighter assistance search team. But like that was supposed to be an advanced skill level. But if I went down on a fire, like why wouldn't I teach that to my new people? Mm-hmm. Because if I go down and they're part of the crew, don't I want them to know how to package me up and drag me out? Like there's going to be a huge time saving in that versus activate like calling. I mean, we've still got to call the mayday and everything, but by the time that, rapid intervention crew or that um, fast team gets to me, like they could already be doing all of these other things, you know? So it's just it, that it's funny when you talk about like VES being as advanced skill, it's not. And we mm-hmm. have to really, we have to embrace that. It's no. uh, We need to be able to train our firemen to be thinking firemen, not firemen that are asking permission for each and every little thing that they need to do. Just like if you go down in a fire, you want your firemen to react and start to perform, not ask for permission, not ask for the RIT team to come in and to save the day. When we look at the stats of its other interior crews that are affecting most of the rescues, the same right. thing with victims. It, our victims are being found majority by primary search crews that are dedicated to search. If you're a nozzle fireman, you're not doing an effective search. You're trying to get to the seat of the fire to put water on fire. Right. That's your mission. So you very commonly people go over victims thinking that it's a pile of clothes or something like that, because they are tone of visioned on what their mission is and what they're supposed to be doing. The same thing, like window initiated search. If we go into a window, are we going out to look at the hallway to see if we can extend? Are we going back like they do in the academies? You go in, you VES one room, you come out, you move the ladder, you go to the next instead Mm -hmm. of just using the hallway that's right there. Right. What's, um, you know, as far as like the, the training that you enjoy, like what's the skill, the rep, you know, that you really like, you know, if you're home with your, your home department and the guys are like, Hey, Chris, we got to do something for tonight. It's kind of a, a crab shoot, you know? Um, but like we got a bunch of guys are ate up, but they want to do something. What's your, what's your go-to? Honestly, you got three big things that I'm a huge fan of forceful entry search and then auto extrication. Obviously, I'm a big nerd uh, when it comes to that and just love to do it. So anytime that we get a chance to be able to cut on cars or force a door, I'm completely in. And being able to go and teach a lot more of just, you're in a back parking lot, let's get the doors off. It's how we're doing it, why we're doing it, what challenges that we can do, and to be able to make them thinking firemen on the ground. So even through our basic classes, we're teaching them succession planning to where if this isn't working, you're switching to this step. You're automatically going in there. So you're thinking through the entire process and can take that big picture look at what you're doing. How um, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a department that's got a forceful entry door. Um, I put it in the middle of my apparatus bay. Uh, I've got all the room in the world. Um, and now guys have gotten pretty good at forcing, forcing the door prop. How do I make that better? How do I make that how, like what's what's my next step to take the challenge up and start uh, preparing my firefighters for the next level? Big things is you take away their space. You make it limited space. You make it limited visibility. It's just like apartment buildings. If we have a center fed, uh, center fed hall apartment building, we may have to force a door and limited to no visibility. So being able to feel that tool with one and two person forceful entry is critical. 
You may be able to have to force your way in, but you also may have to be able to force your way out of a bad environment. Right. So if you truly know how the tools are working, you're using your maximum mechanic advantage as we're taking your space away, whether it be a narrow hall, a basement, enter apartment or something like that, then we can start taking visibility away. And that just starts building on the skills to where you have to be able to effectively communicate with verbal and nonverbal cues with the person that you're working with. And then ultimately you have an inward swinging door. You go in for a limited or no visibility force, tight hallway, and there's something against the door whether it be a hose dummy, a victim, or somebody else from the crew, you're finding 13 to 14% of victims within six foot of an exterior door. So you put a victim there. How are you shimmying in around that victim to that door to be able to open that door to be able to get that victim out? Same thing when we do VES drills. We do VES and they go out and they're teach to look in the hallway. But what if we put a victim five feet down the hall? Are they thinking to pull that victim in that door to isolate them to give them a better chance of survival? Are they going to say, hey, yeah, there's a victim out there and close that door? Because right. just like when we were teaching penciling in the academy, we're teaching this in a step-by-step -step process and there's no variation because we are not allowing the students and the recruits to think. So when they get out on their first fire, they're going to pencil because that's the same thing they were taught in every live fire skill they did in the academy. Don't put the fire out. Absolutely. Yeah. Chris, uh you know, the one thing I just want other just kind of hit on because I looked down at this and talk to me about what it means to be aggressive because it becomes personally sometimes and uh, to, you know, and kind of um, hail to the, to, the, to the great Mo Davis, right? Uh, I think when you start talking about aggressive, it's the easy, easy way to start figuring out who your cowards are in the fire service because they'll instantly pop up and say like, no, 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 you know, let's not be aggressive. But like, you know, in, in, in reality, like, how, like what is, what does being aggressive mean in today's day and age? Well, to me, it means being mm -hmm. ready. It means that you're ready to take and confront whatever is put in front of you. It means that you're ready to decide, ready to act and ready to move. It's not, waiting for permission or somebody there to hold your hand as you go through something. It means that you're going to, with a purpose, resolve whatever the problem is in front of you, whether it's putting a fire out, getting a victim out, getting one of your brother firemen that's trapped inside of a building out to where they can get the care that they need. It means that you're thinking, it means that you're problem solving. To aggressive to me is a good thing. And mm -hmm. it comes from the same thing from the military. I want an aggressive military protecting me. I don't want somebody timid being the first person on the stack to go through a door and clear a building that's full of terrorists. I want somebody who is ready to act, ready to perform, and knows what his or her job is to be that first person through the door so they're making decisions so people are living and people aren't dying. How, so like your your military experience, you know, it, it, it crosses over to the fire department. Mm -hmm. um, and, and how do the two worlds kind of collide to make what we have here? Because I, I, I feel like one, one of the things when I got promoted is I read a lot of military books. And one of my friends warned me, he said, hey, there's a whole market and industry out there just on leadership from, you know, POGO officers to so just be careful. But, um, you know, like how 
how did you meld these together? Or did you even? Yeah, absolutely, there is. So I was in the fire service before I went in the military and I continued everything as I was going through my military time. And then obviously as I got out of the military, went back into it full time. But there's a lot of good leadership lessons learned from the military. There's also a lot of bad leadership lessons mm -hmm. learned from the military. And you can look through any military textbook, the big battles during the Civil War, everything else, where you look and see it at the high number of casualties where big wars were lost. It was typically your officers that were timid. They were scared. They didn't truly understand the job and they weren't listening to the subordinates around them. To where if you're looking at military success and especially from high level teams, uh, special operation groups, everything else, it all starts with how they select people to be part of their team. So the selection process, the hiring process of the fire department. So if we are watering down the standards, we are increasing our mediocrity. We are increasing the issues that we're going to have in the long run. If we maintain our high standards and we hold people accountable, including ourselves to those high standards, we're getting a more select group of professionals. So I think it all starts with how we're recruiting and how we're hiring that goes in the fire service. Instead of watering down our standards, we keep our standards where they belong. And we may be working with smaller numbers where we're going to get a better end product. There's a reason that our special operations teams aren't huge bodies and numbers. It is small teams of professionals that can do so much because of their training, how they're able to adapt, and that they're all thinking professionals as they go through. So it's the same thing as the fire service. We're trying to fill spots with pulses. We're not trying to fill the job with who's going to perform and who's going to be able to do it. And you run into the issue of we're just filling the spot to fill a spot. One, we're going to have increased disciplinary issues. We're going to have increased retention issues and we're going to be in the same boat or people are going to die. And those are all three things that we cannot afford in this profession. So we need to be maintaining the standards. We need to be holding each other accountable, but we need to look the big picture of where we are recruiting our people from. Are we getting out into the high schools? Are we getting out of the middle schools to where we can start shaping somebody for this career early on? What about the junior firefighter programs? to where we can start getting these people involved to what the standards are, start working towards stuff and start building these relationships long before they go and take the civil service test. It's the same thing when professional athletes are being recruited, they're being looked at when they're in middle school and high school by some of these scouts, right? They're trying to see where the ability is going to be to where they can shape that over the next couple of years to where they're ready and they're of age they're able to go right into that organization and be a lot more successful. And we need to be doing the same thing. And can the person learn, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So you learn who are the great people, but they may not be able to hit the curveball. But you're seeing that and you're weeding that out over years to where you can start shaping that because when they're in that young age, they're still moldable. So some of the behavioral issues, the training issues, stuff like that, you have time to be able to fix to where they can be some of your best all-stars for the fire service and it's really the perfect time to for us to be you know true mentors like mm -hmm. that's it's it's i look at it too uh i remember you know i was asking somebody that was uh, an addict once about um 
they were an addict and they had gone into gotten you know in their recovery had become counselors and they, they used this term and they said listen if you don't have good soil if you don't fix these issues you, you it doesn't matter what seeds you have they're just not going to grow well they're eventually going to die out so that mentorship is huge and when you're you know if you can get those those folks when they're young and be that mentor and that's you know really i mean i think that in a, in a lot of places that's what the fire department still is and and should should strive to be so absolutely all right chris we've been going on for almost uh 50 minutes here and i've got about four pages of notes which is pretty impressive um what do you guys have coming up for the for the year uh we will actually be leaving this week we're going to carolina fire days be doing a lecture there and then we got two days of live fire search so that is this week down there so that's going to be a great time we're really looking forward to and i think that's the last big conference for the year but we have a couple local classes that are going on between here and there and a lot of cutting cars but we're just getting out and resetting refurbing a lot of our props and everything else but we're continuing to be involved with the departments that are around us and getting ready for next year to be able to go out and train a lot more i was gonna say is the calendar already filling up for 2024 oh yes it's awesome. getting quite full already so it's good do you have anything you want to plug for 2024 coming up uh not right now uh okay. we're still adjusting the schedule on our Facebook page and on the website and everything else, but there's going to be a lot of big things happening or we're really, really looking forward to getting the entire teaching crew out there to be able to interact with the students and just get back and be able to learn from them as well. How, how many people are on your cadre? Uh, we have 18 instructors in Ohio alone. Uh, and we have some that are scattered in some other States. And that's, I mean, that, uh, you really can't underscore the the value of of the like-minded people getting together mm -hmm. to make the fire this fire service better through citizens first fire training because without them like i mean it would just be you and that's a lot of work but like really it, it it's it's a family it takes it takes a village you know kind of thing oh absolutely and we involve uh, the instructors families as well just like when we were out at uh, lake the ozarks mm -hmm. all the instructors that came out there brought their families with them we were able to do family dinners at the end of the day, hang out. The uh, wives and kids were able to go out and do stuff. And we do the same thing that's back here, but also our training events. We open it up to where the students can bring their families too. So oh, yeah. we'll have lunch for everybody. We will have stuff that's ready to where they can come out and see what mom and dad are doing to be able to get that buy-in, get that investment to make it easier at home. And a lot of the department classes that we do, uh, the family or the firefighter association or the wives will all come together. And we have meals at the end of the day. We talk through the training. We build that relationship with them. And that's what we want is not just to be able to go out and teach a class and then we leave is we want to build a relationship to where if you have questions later on, you can ask, you can freely call text seven days a week or where if you had a bad day that you can reach out and tell somebody about it. Yeah. That is awesome. Where can people find you, Chris? Uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we're on TikTok as well now, so still learning all that. Uh, <laughs> but my cell phone's on everything, so anybody can reach out to us on email at citizensfirstfiretraining at gmail.com. 
You can reach out on our Facebook, our Instagram, our TikTok. You can text, call, it doesn't matter. Or any of our instructors, uh, they're all active on social media. You can reach out, reach out to them, ask them any questions you want, and they're all empowered to make sure you're taken care of. That's awesome. Chris, is there anything else that we're leaving out? Anything that we didn't touch on that you want to plug, hit on? No, I, I think we're good. Just uh, if anybody wants to get out and train or do anything, please reach out. We want to help as much as possible. If you guys have questions on tools and equipment, please reach out. We'll help. Anything that we sell, we use before we'll even put out there. So we put us through its abuse and paces before that. Yeah, I remember we were looking at uh, when I was out in Missouri that that revolutionary fire tactics of the lake, the uh, the one the one wall you had. Mm -hmm. So that was and, and you were kind of giving me the rundown on it, and it was really cool. I mean, I was I was pretty stoked about it, and I gotta I gotta follow up with you and get get one over here in Fairview. Absolutely, uh, so. we can do that. But yeah, anything that we put our name on, we fully stand behind, and it's just tools that have built to work and built to save lives. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you for coming on the gospel with me. I appreciate it. Um, and all of us here at National Fire Radio, this has been fantastic. I got, like I said, I got like four pages of notes. So that's going to be fun to transcribe for Sebi. But uh, thank you for, for being on today. I'm going to sign this out here. Just stick around for a minute. But everybody, this is Rob, National Fire Radio with the Gospel. This has been an amazing episode on training with Chris Kessinger, Citizens First Fire Training. Check them out. You can get them on Instagram, uh, citizensfirstfiretraining.com. And everything's been scrolling across the bottom of this. So if you're watching it and you're just now figuring this out, look at the bottom as well. And you can see on the, on the uh, ticker scroll there how to get a hold of them. Chris, thank you so much. This is Rob, National Fire Radio, the Gospel. We'll see you guys later. <laughs>